Can you kind of talk to some of the things that you see as really kind of game-changing? Well, Ajax was definitely one of the things that you don't hear that one very often anymore. But Nobody loves Ajax. I know Ajax what they do. Like... They're doing it. <laughs> they just call it partial hydration oh. or something. <laughs> <laughs> Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at O'Reilly. Many of you know O'Reilly for their animal tech books and their conferences, but you may not know they have an online learning platform as well. The platform has all their books, all their videos, and all their conference talks. Plus, you can learn by doing with live online training courses and virtual conferences, certification practice exams, and interactive sandboxes and scenarios to practice coding alongside what you're learning. They cover a ton of technology topics, machine learning, AI, programming languages, DevOps, data science, cloud, containers, security, and even soft skills like business management and presentation skills. You name it, it is all in there. If you need to keep your team or yourself up to speed on their tech skills, then check out O'Reilly's online learning platform. Learn more and keep your team skills sharp at O'Reilly.com slash changelog. Again, O'Reilly.com slash changelog. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on YouTube each and every Thursday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Subscribe to our channel for notifications at youtube.com slash changelog. And join in the conversation on Twitter. We are at JS Party FM. Okay, let's get right into it. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Hello, party people. Super, super excited about today's show. I'm so excited, I actually forgot. What episode number is this? 177. 177, thank you. Episode number 177. And we're talking about rendering patterns today. Super kind of fundamental stuff to how we deliver incredible user experiences. Single page applications, server-side render, everything in between. We're gonna cover history, we're gonna cover uh, kind of bleeding edge topics, and we're going to be hopefully doing a twinkle in the eye look ahead. And we're super excited to have a very special guest with us today, Brian LaRue. Hello, Brian. Hi. I'm stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. We're stoked to have Hello you. On this topic. Yeah, it's a great topic. It's a topic that I'm genuinely concerned about fitting into like, you know, <laughs> an hour. So Nick, you're going to have to keep us on track because, you know, I feel like I'm going to nerd out. So bad, bad host today. <laughs> Speaking of Nick, welcome, Nick. Hoi hoi. I'm happy to be here. Partially rehydrating. Ah, uh, so punny. How many puns can we fit into today? I wonder. <laughs> so Brian, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm Brian. I've been around here for a while now. I've been responsible for all kinds of bad websites since the 90s and some good ones too. I'm really passionate about this space and the topic, especially things like accessibility and the web as a whole. This is Global Accessibility Day, so it's a good day to talk about rendering. And I'm the CEO of Begin.com, I guess I should plug that. It'll be an elegant platform for building full stack web apps. So you should check that out if you're into that. And uh, yeah, that's me. 
That's super cool. And you've like worked on some pretty cool open source projects and you've also been involved with like the mobile web space for a very long time. Do you want to give us an insight into that? That's right. I almost blocked all that out. So these days I'm mostly working on, on sort of serverless tech, things that are on demand and scale to zero. But I think the thing I kind of became known for and the thing I was working on for almost a decade uh, was called PhoneGap and then later Apache Cordova. And that was really sort of rose up during um, when JavaScript became acceptable socially to admit you did uh, <laughs> around 2008, 2009 timeframe. This is a funny thing, like uh, the way I remember it anyways, JavaScript used to be uncool. And like uh, now it's like you know, the coolest thing ever. It's like, oh, really? Okay, I'm, I'm here for that. But, uh, didn't, didn't used to be the case. <laughs> it feels like you've got a new uh, tagline for JavaScript. It's like JavaScript. Socially acceptable since 1999, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was a good run there where it was not yeah. considered cool and still isn't in many circles, which is funny, but yeah. Still lots uh, of trolls, I agree. There are, yeah. It's a perpetual problem with the internet. You know, we're always refilling it with lots of, lots yeah. of uh, negativity as, as well as positivity, unfortunately. TypeScript seems to be soothing some of those problems a little, though. I think, you know, there's a decent number of trolls who've kind of been permanently silenced by TypeScript, I think. But still, you know, there's still lots more out there. So Brian is super humble, but yeah, he's been working on the web for a long time on some pretty cool projects and like somehow managed to, I don't know, live life on the edge, I feel like. Even kind of the serverless movement, you've really kind of got involved with that pretty early. I think you're like a subject matter expert on um, serverless framework and you're a contributor. Did you create it? I don't even know what the backstory is with that, but... No, 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 no. I was I was there from the very beginning for sure. Mm -hmm. That was created by a dude named Austin, and he's got a company around that. Uh, I work on one called uh, OpenJS Architect, um, which would be, I guess, technically a competitor, but I don't really believe in that concept in open source. They take a different approach than we do, and they do good stuff. But yeah, I always end up, um, this is an affliction of mine, like I get interested in something probably prematurely, and then I, I go all in, like when mobile was happening, I was really excited about that. That was a big deal. And Steve Jobs was like, hey, you're going to build websites and they're going to run on your phone. Like that, that blew my mind completely. <laughs> like the idea of even seeing maps on your phone was novel at that point. And getting like directions was a pretty weird idea. So like apps have come a long way in 10 years and in a sense actually predicated the whole SBA thing. And then, yeah, when I saw serverless happen, I'd had been doing a bunch of cloud stuff for PhoneGap, actually, up to that point. And I saw Lambda get demoed with API Gateway in 2015. It's like something snapped. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's all going to work. Uh, like, we're not going to load balance containers. That's a ridiculous proposition. Why would you do that? Let somebody else do that and outsource it to them, right? And so for me, that was just immediately obvious in 2015. Here we are in 2021, and that's still news to some people. But... That's kind of my, my curse and my blessing. I'll see these things as they're happening and get excited about them and kind of glom onto it maybe yeah. a little earlier than I should. <laughs> and for anyone who's listening, this is exactly why I wanted to talk about this topic with Brian. I feel like he's got some really unique insights as someone who's worked on these technologies, but also I think he's a little bit of a, a Kramer in the sense that I think, you know, I'm curious to hear what his predictions are as somebody who's, you know, lived life on the edge for quite a long time. Let's talk about some of the kind of, you know, how rendering started on the web. We know there's three primitives, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. They weren't even all official at the same time, right? Like HTML was first. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, style sheets actually came later. 
and JavaScript came even later than that. And JavaScript was quite late, uh, yeah. comparatively years later. Right. The first style sheets, you can actually see in the source code. I can't remember the next browser Tim Berners-Lee had worked on. And back then it was like H1 and H2 could be styled differently. And that was about it. Blink and Marquee were much later and other fun techniques. But yeah, originally the whole concept was around the document. And I think this kind of gets forgotten sometimes, but like there is no JavaScript without that document. You have to render a script tag at some point in order to get the JavaScript running. So it's the very first thing that's going to happen. And it's a pretty guaranteed thing to happen. Whereas the rest of this stuff isn't necessarily guaranteed. You know, we don't really know for sure if that thing is going to load. The sub resources, you know, might be turned off. They might be turned off for good reasons because of accessibility. They might be turned off for bad reasons like bandwidth or network or who knows why. Um, but that HTML will always get there and that'll be the first thing. And, and that's really where we all started. When I first, first started looking at this stuff many years ago, it was pretty much CGI scripts and Perl and good luck with that. And then, you know, time prevailed and Microsoft decided they'd help us and we got ASP Classic. Somewhere in there, Cold Fusion and PHP happened. And in all these cases, we were uh, running a dynamic process, a trusted process, we would call it. It was a process I controlled, and that would uh, generate HTML, usually based on some kind of database rows or something like that, and it would return it. And then some point around 2007, 2008, I think it was, GitHub did GitHub pages, and they were like, hey, you know, we could just do static assets for, and we could pre-render this stuff. And I think a lot of people thought that was a pretty good idea for a lot of large number of use cases, especially static content, content that's not changing. No point in using a dynamic process for that. It doesn't need to be trusted if it's public content. So you don't have to have a, any kind of calls to a database or anything like that. And so that that was you know the original sort of pre-rendering thing that never really had a name. And then weirdly, I guess, Somewhere along the line, Netlify decided to call it Jamstack, although they still don't quite understand how JavaScript APIs and markup equals pre-rendering, and I don't think it does. I think they are different things, and those goalposts are currently moving. And yeah, I guess SPAs became a bit of a thing, too. When JavaScript became socially acceptable around 2009 timeframe, there were a lot of projects out there that were trying to be mobile. And I'm not talking about like phone app stuff. I'm just talking about web pages. Dojo X Mobile. Yeah, and it was like you had to pinch and zoom to get to the form, and it was terrible. And no one liked that. And so, you know, reloading a page over a 3G network, flash of unstyled content, uh, it's just that. So SPAs became really popular as a way to deal with that navigation transition jank. And especially popular in embedded web apps like PhoneGap and Cordova and Electron and Ionics of the world. And it's just continued to get popular, although I don't know that it is necessarily appropriate for, for all things. Browsers are faster now. None of these are good and bad is, is kind of my, my disclaimer on this. Like if you're building a single page app, um, that's probably appropriate for your context and good for you. That's awesome. And, you know, there are trade-offs that come with that. And it might not be appropriate for all contexts. If all your data is dynamic and trusted and needs to be accessed through a database because it's secured and needs to be, you know, more than one user that can access different private data, then that has to be dynamic. You can't pre-render that. So it's 
not a bad thing. It's just the, the constraints of the use case that you have. So different ways to deal with that. You know, single page apps don't have to be static per se. They can call out using APIs, but now we're inviting Spinorama to the party and you know, not everybody likes loading a page full of spinners. There's that trade-off, which maybe doesn't matter. I'm just going to keep hedging here. That was quite, quite the, quite the like uh, storytelling journey. Thank you. Um, Spinorama. I'm going to totally use that from now on. Like I, I just call it like the wheel of wheel of death or something, you know, <laughs> my bank does this to me. It makes me so like so much anxiety. And I know that they think they've got a good lighthouse score because those spinners load so fast. But the last place I want to see a non-deterministic page is my bank statement. Yeah, like great. the last place. Like I want that rendered right away. <laughs> I want to know that you have that data and it's safe. And all they're telling me is like, eh, yeah, we might get to that. There's going to be some eventual consistency here. Eventually. And often there is, you know, some spinners finish loading, other ones don't. And it's like, what is going on on this page? Right. Oh, gosh. Well, you mentioned SPAs like being mm -hmm. this thing that made mobile particularly painful. Mm -hmm. I would say viewing the web from a mobile device. And, you know, for me, I, I kind of think of... SPAs is something like, I feel like they were totally designed for desktop. And so it was really interesting to even hear you talk about the mobile case. Cause I don't even like, I don't, when single page applications became a thing, right. I don't know. Was this like uh, sometime in like early two thousands or something like that is like when they kind of started to become a hot new thing, you know, frameworks like backbone and angular kind of popularized. Was there something before backbone that helped with, I feel like can JS or, uh, Dojo. There was some Joe. dojo. Duh, yeah, <laughs> dojo right, already right. did all of that. Of course, yeah. yeah. Yep. Dojo did everything yeah. first, right? Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. like, what else? That's, I'm like, I know Backbone wasn't true, first. Though. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure like even before that, like a bunch of unknown, you know, like kind of just uh, one-off tools or processes. I'm sure people were, you know, it's just kind of like, when did it hit big? But somewhere in the early 2000s. And, you know, desktop was like, you know, folks were just really profiling for desktop and like, the whole kind of thick client movement that, you know, it was like, oh, move everything to the client, right? Like, you know, everything was server rendered previous to this. And now, you know, with things like Ajax, we had this like, mat, you know, way of doing partial rendering in the client. And it was all about trying to make experiences fast and optimized for hardwired desktop connections. And like, that's something that we're just still so stuck with in like 2020, you know, like the web has moved on, uh, it's, uh, it's accessed more on tiny devices that are touchscreen and that have internet, yeah, intermittent connectivity. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're still like our primary use case, even when new, new products like roll out, you know, every, like we are assuming hardwired desktop. It's interesting how that. SPA kind of architecture is really stuck around for this long, you know? Well, it's getting good. And, you know, like it's never going to recreate the whole browser as good as the browser can be, but it's getting pretty good. And, and the tooling is, is getting pretty sharp. And the frameworks allow people to have a consistent mental model to work against their, their artifact. And so instead of having clean separation of concerns. We have one mental model for everything and everything is coming out of that one, one place. And, and I get it. I mean, that's nice. There's an arity argument for simplicity. You know, it's more simple if there's only one way to think about your JavaScript. Unfortunately, that JavaScript probably runs in a couple places. It's going to run a node and it's going to run in the browser at least. 
And those are different runtimes. And that creates an impotence mismatch, which does create problems. Yeah, I think it makes sense. The pendulum always swings around between client and server over the years. And we're fully deep in the client right now. And a lot of people are going, hey, this, this doesn't smell right. Yeah. And, and people people are trying to, you know, definitely like the pendulum has swung the other way in terms of, I think, thought circles, right? So obviously mm-hmm. there's like the web in reality. And then there's, you know, like the web that we are striving for, you know, those are two different things. And I think, you know, folks uh, like yeah. the, the intellectual circles and the, the like best, best, best practices have shifted towards, hey, SPA, probably not the best use case for most things. Uh, however, like it's not one size fits all, right? So it really depends on your use case. You, like, you know, you don't, it's server-side rendered versus, you know, not like there's kind of this rubric that you need to like go through for yourself and make sure that you're, you're not over-optimizing either, right? Because you don't want to try to solve problems you don't have, which, you know, is, is a tough thing in our community, like, because there's <laughs> a lot of high thinking, you know? It's like, ah, oh, must, must do this new thing. Or must, like, you know, without really understanding, like, why and what problem it's solving, so. Do you think that that is what precipitates these pendulum swings back and forth between server-side and client-side? It's, you know, something popular, like, I don't know, Facebook, for example, solving their big massive at scale problems with something like react and then everyone following that and then now maybe swinging back to more of like a server side thing with like nextjs or things like that what do you think precipitates that to just constantly swing back and forth well there's lots of ways to kind of look at this lens i think appeals to popularity and authority are a big part of it for sure that people no one got fired for buying Oracle in the 80s and no one gets fired for choosing React today. And, you know, it's a really solid question because I don't think there's a clean answer to this one. Like, what are the predicates for shifts? There are massive technology shifts going on right now. So pre-rendering has truly been a solution for cold start. It takes a second to talk to that database. Whereas if you pre-render and you eat that cost locally at author time with your build step, your user gets a, a much faster experience. And so that is slowly becoming no longer true. Uh, computers are getting faster. It's not a controversial statement. Networks are getting faster. It's pretty obvious that's happening as well. So do we need to eat this step anymore? And will we continue to need to eat this step on our local dev machine? I think the answer is probably no, as of like a few years ago, but it takes a while for this step to catch up. Other things change too. like. Like I said, it used to be pretty socially unacceptable to ship JavaScript to the client. Clearly, that has changed. Now it, now it is acceptable to ship as much JavaScript as you want to the client. And maybe that's worth examining in a, in a lens of accessibility because I don't, think, I don't think it is actually true that it's super acceptable for all cases. But it can be for some. You know, like The beauty and the wonder of this whole thing that we get to work on is that it is diverse. And there are, like, thank God there's so many options and that we have this amount of complexity and confusion because the opposite is way worse. The sort of dead years of the web when IE was the dominant browser and had no innovation at all was horribly painful. And we had to resort to some pretty ugly hacks. Like, we used to manually make rounded corners. Can you believe that? Like, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> Why are we doing that? Yeah, no, and no, where no. would the world be now if we weren't spending time on that? <laughs> <laughs> like, dead years of the browser. 
Seriously. Yeah, no, um, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, uh, in the next segment, we're going to get into some of the specifics around what were kind of the pivotal game-changing moments around rendering patterns. And we'll dive into some of the current bleeding edge, super, super forward-thinking architectures and uh, patterns that are being tossed around in the, uh, what I like to call cigar club of JavaScript, you know, smoking cigars and like intellectualizing on how the web should be community. So, so we'll get into that and more. What's up, JS Party people? Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? Well, with Raygun Air and Performance Monitoring, you have all the information you need at your fingertips to quickly find and fix errors and performance issues across your tech stack down to the line of code. This saves you time, this saves you money, and this saves your sanity. Head to Raygun.com to join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com to give them a try with a free 14-day trial. Wow. So what a wild journey the web has had through its discovery. You know, I heard a long time ago the web being described as being in its teenage years or in its um, kind of like twenties or, you know, so it's still very much discovering itself. And it really feels that's maybe a permanent feature of the web is like the constant innovation and discovery. Earlier you were saying computers are getting faster. And so, you know, we're kind of being saved by our compute power improving. However, I think for me, there's a linear kind of correlation there with also web apps being more complex, you know? And so it's like, uh, totally. yeah, our hardware's getting better, but, you know, we're doing a lot more. So, you know, so it's a challenge. And we might hit a wall with one, with, with like Moore's Law slowing down, right? So totally. will we hit a wall with complexity or will that just keep skyrocketing past? Yeah. I know so what I think. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you should start a betting pool on that, you know, <laughs> but there's been some really key moments for the web around like not just actually native web APIs, but also tools and technologies that have like really helped with how we pivot and create better experiences for our users. Kind of get into some of those like Ajax, you know, CDNs, serverless APIs, ESM, web workers, service workers, even GraphQL has changed the game for shipping less data on, you know, like tiny devices and, and reducing the API maintenance surface area for developers, right? You don't need to maintain like a mobile version of an API. So yeah, can you kind of talk to some of the things that you see as like really kind of game changing? Well, Ajax was definitely one of the things that you don't hear that one very often anymore, but nobody loves be, Ajax. I know Ajax what they do. Like... They're doing it. <laughs> they just call it partial hydration oh. or something. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesse James Garrett is the guy that coined the term. He used to work at a company called Adaptive Path. And the predicate for it was this tiny API that Microsoft actually pioneered called XML HTTP request, which is a real mouthful and inconsistently spelled too. Yeah, so it's like really irksome to web platform people that look at that and they see XML HTTP requests, and it's like an annoying API, but it used to be the way to make a network request from a client to the server, and back then we did XML, so that was why we got the name, 
And funny enough, people used to actually send document fragments very often back then. So you would send uh, chunks of HTML over the wire. So this wasn't a new thing that had been recently discovered. This has been going on since. <laughs> it's called Hotwire. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, Ajax really lifted the JavaScript thing out of the dark ages. At that point, it was generally considered a thing you would use for validation. And that would be about it. You would, you know, validate your form. So the user didn't have to submit it to discover that they entered something incorrectly. And then Ajax gave us permission to start rendering little chunks of UI. And then that really, really started snowballing fast into where we are today, where we're uh, outsourcing as much to the client as we can. CDNs have been a pretty pivotal thing for this, um, especially recently. CDN used to be uh, you know, where I put my fonts and stuff. And now CDN is like the fronter for everything that happens. It is the the sort of API gateway, as it were, uh, for the user interface. And that's that's content delivery network. In case we our fans right. aren't uh, aware. <laughs> yeah, and so CDNs are a funny one because people toss the term around now for just about anything, but really it's supposed to mean that there are data centers closer to the user. And so many of the people purporting to be CDNs do not operate data centers. They build on top of people like Amazon and Akamai to do what they do. And the idea is you push the content closer to the data center where the person is, and now you're only bound by the speed of light. That's kind of nice. CDNs typically only deal in static stuff, although that is changing fast. We're now starting to put functions on the edge. Yeah, Um, so much edge compute happening. mm -hmm. There used to be best practice info out there about like loading your your static javascript from cdns like jquery or yeah those yeah because then it would be shared by everyone and you'd probably already have it loaded by the time you got to your site yeah yeah we've kind of lost that with the bundle thing yeah a little bit and probably for the better is <laughs> yeah. uh, the joke would be we don't want john resig to go rogue and take out half the internet <laughs> if you've ever met John Rensing or seen him speak, the idea of him going rogue is pretty funny. But but that did happen, know, he, right? With uh, I think yeah. like Douglas Crockford and the the JSON uh, parser, didn't that? Uh, am I yeah, right? Yeah, some yeah. This is <laughs> tickling a cobweb in my brain right now. But the idea would be, anyways, you can't really necessarily trust the internet, and if you know you're loading your your source code from some third party that you don't control and you might have a bad day, your data could get exfiltrated, cookies could get stolen, puppies will die, whatever, it would be a bad day. But I think you know that's a case by case. If you're a financial services company or you're dealing in healthcare data, then yeah, load on your own same origin. Don't don't use the third party <laughs> CDN. If it's a static web page for your you know personal site or something, no worries. It's it's probably fine. <laughs> Yeah, there's actually one of my favorite security uh, uh, headers is around, um, you know, just having a, a very strict allow list for what origins you will accept running JavaScript from. And that's like such an easy way to get a bunch of really good like coverage around like not having people hijack your website or whatever. So this is the beauty of the web. The same origin sandbox is so powerful. and has allowed us to outsource untrusted computers all over the world, including devices in your pocket, like your phone. And that's kind of, it's a little bit getting lost in the complexity of the day, but at the end of the day, if you can put everything on the same origin with the same URL and you control that DNS, then 
you have a really high guarantee if that sandbox is, is uh, secure, which is a publishing. We've never really had this in the history of humanity before. Like anyone can publish anything anywhere at any time to a trusted place and, and verify that that's probably safe and good is right. It's kind of nice. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And so like kind of looking at this like movement of Jamstack and or the statically rendered content or whatever, right? Like serverless APIs, I think, have been a huge kind of uh, enablement for that as well. Mm -hmm. And also just to a degree, not just like serverless APIs, but I guess CDNs too, in theory, could, you know, have also like really like the, the CDN plus the serv serverless APIs have made that marriage really kind of tight. But yeah, the thing that kind of happened, I think anyways, and this is super up for debate in the comments, we realized that we needed indemnity or determinism or another fancy word is immutability. We, we wanted to get the thing we thought we would get when we deployed that thing. So we, in the dynamic world, we've got lock files and infrastructure as code. In static world, we don't need any of that. We pre-render it, it's done. You baked it, you can see it. And when you deploy it, that's what happens. In the server world, servers are very stateful. They have all kinds of stuff going on. They got operating systems, they got runtimes, they've got patches, they've got network adapters, they've got different cloud providers. Like they're very, very stateful, which is a nice way of saying they're bug farms. And you you kind of end up in this place where indemnity is very difficult to achieve. And so uh, reproducibility is difficult to achieve. And if things aren't reproducible, then you're going to have a bad day trying to fix that bug because you can't reproduce it necessarily. It works on my machine, it becomes like a real problem. So the CDN and the move to static is a big endorsement of being stateless and deterministic. And these are also faster. So there's just like a lot of guarantees here. And I, I don't mean runtime faster. I mean faster developer velocity. Uh, when I can reproduce a bug quickly locally, that's exactly the same to the version I thought it was. And then when I prove I fixed it, that's, that's nice. You know, I get to go home at five. If I'm running at something on my machine, I'm like, it works here. It doesn't work when it ends up in Kubernetes. That's a bad day. And, um, yeah. That's kind of how we got here. The problem is if we do all this work at author time, it gets slow. And there's no real fix for this one. If you have a million page website, you're going to make for a million pages to build. This is a good problem to have, by the way. You got a million pages of content suite. That's awesome. It sucks that if you change the copyright, you got to wait for that whole thing to rebuild for the, to discover that you know you got the spelling wrong on one page or something. And I guess that kind of like pushes us into this newer world where we're trying to find hybrid techniques for dealing with that build step. Yeah, I mean, like yeah, optimizing that feels very much like a problem that we can engineer ourselves out of. You know, with like hashes and just more, uh, just yeah cached binaries and whatever else and so but yeah i think fast we compilers be, yeah fast exactly right it's like we can totally engineer ourselves out of that problem yeah i think web workers you know and service workers have also like done some tremendous things for you know improving improving the web in terms of getting things off the main thread with web workers and service workers have kind of changed the game of like 
yeah, there's a proxy in the browser now and, you know, you can have really smart caching managed via JavaScript and like not via complex headers. And, you know, you have a lot more flexibility in how you cache and your strategy can change really like in a way that's very responsive to your user's client. And I think that's just for me, I feel like service worker is probably my favorite. Like if I had to pick one API that came out in the past 10 years, API tool, framework, whatever, like it would probably be service workers. They're just so underappreciated in terms of like how powerful it is to have like a proxy in the browser and like what that means for like just a caching strategy and like how easy it is to progressively create that strategy. You know, it's huge. Yeah. We use them for dealing with the state with our WebSocket. And so what we used to do is we had a listener you know, we would get socket events and then we'd um, modify some state and then we had something observing that state and then that would re-render, you know, the, the DOM elements that we need to re-render. And like you said, it, it's kind of computationally expensive and block up the main thread. And sometimes you'd have a moment where you'd be scrolling and you'd be like, <laughs> you knew it was talking to the web socket when it did that. And as soon as we pushed that into a worker, all these issues went away. And now we have this wonderful little state manager hanging out in the background, just chucking data into the DOM and um, indirectly. Well, that ES modules and fetch. And so these are all oh, yeah. kind of semi-related things like networking, background tasks, and a, and a module system. Oh my God, we have one. Well, if we're talking about fetch, I, I, how could I forget, right? Indexed DB. Yeah, indexed DB kind of, yeah, just giving you a really smart not the best API, but smart way to to be able to kind of manage your cached or persistent data. You know, you can version it and it's a lot, you know, it's great. Some really good libraries help you deal with some of the quirks around the API. So we'll link them in the show notes for like good abstractions on IndexedDB. Uh, I don't even think it's recommended that you, like folks are like, just just use a library to like abstract it. You yeah, know? Cause it's just I would say managing so. it on your own <laughs> is just a little much. But yeah, so, so all these awesome... Web APIs, right, have kind of changed the game. Uh, ESM, totally. How could I forget about ESM? ESM is, yeah, like the probably true kind of... Uh, I wish I could forget about ESM. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, if you're from the Node community, maybe, you know, it's yeah. painful, uh, painful getting there, but, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's probably an easy, easier one to forget because it's been kind of abstracted away for so long so that you just long, forget yeah. about it not actually being something that existed natively in a browser and, and now it does. And yeah, we in, actually, as far back, I think as 2016, we've been using ES modules, naked standard spec ES modules, not the transpiled kind in the browser very happily. I've been telling people this for years. It's fast. And finally in the last like six months, people are like, Hey, did you know it's fast? I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm very aware it's fast. It's built into the browser. Of course it's fast. The you know only downside is after you get a larger graph, you end up in a waterfall. Uh, so now we're still stuck with the bundle step, but yeah. what a joy to have. And I don't know if y'all have been playing with Deno at all, but to have a, a runtime like Node, except for uses ES modules, is a lot of fun. And there's clear to me, like, this was, and still is, extremely painful. It shouldn't have gone this way. We should have paved the cow pass that we had, but we didn't, and that's fine. We are where we are. And where we are is we have two module systems and they're competing and we're fixing that by adding a third and compiling <laughs> into the into the native one. And, and that's 
not great. And it's probably not going to last all that long. Eventually, people are going to be like, hey, we already have a module system. Why are we compiling into this other third one? And it's a bit of a pain because there's so much great JavaScript code that's been written in the last decade that is probably going to get abandoned to historical obscurity because it didn't follow along with the, uh, the latest stuff. And you know, people can say that you can transpile to fix that problem, but you know it's better than transpiling to fix that problem? Not having not that having, problem. Not having that. <laughs> yeah. Not having it, yeah. Oh, man. I feel like there's not a world where we're never going to have like no build steps. I mean, just because I think even just beyond transpiling, right, there's so many other benefits that you can get just with accessibility and whatever else and just managing your different versions for different browsers. But yeah, I hear you. Like if we could just like end one thing in JavaScript, I'd say like, yeah, let's just get rid of transpiling. Like everyone just use JavaScript that's legal. Yeah. And spec. Yeah. 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 Especially for like our dependencies, it's like a huge bottleneck. And so, but anyways, meanwhile, I'm just over here writing TypeScript and completely relying on transpiling. Oh man. You are right. By the way, there is no version of this story where we don't do it. And there's a technical reason for that. We can sort of like put a pin in this one as a discussion point. Because sometimes people do think it's like an either or, but there is no or. So the network is hostile. The network mm-hmm. is strange and weird. The topology is unknown and the, the performance is unknown. And there's nothing we can do about that. And because of that fact, we have to fingerprint our files, which is a fancy way of saying we need to be able to invalidate the cache. If I have index.js being served from my origin, Usually that's going to work. And usually you'll get a fresh version every time. But you can't guarantee that. There could be a third-party proxy in the way that caches that index.js forever. And this isn't hypothetical. This happens a lot out there. So we have to fingerprint these files in order to invalidate the cache so that our users get the latest version every time. And we have to fingerprint the file. We have build step. No one wants to look at a file named index GUID. .js, that's going to be uncool. Yeah. You want to, so for those that are not familiar with it, fingerprinting is a technique where we'll, we'll create a hash of the contents of the file and we'll append that to the file name. This make, ensures the file is unique and then we can cache it forever. And then if there's a new version of that file, the fingerprint will be different and that's what will be loaded the next time. So there's always a build step to fingerprint. If you're doing this in any form of scale, you'll discover this caching issue with the network. As soon as you've accepted that there's a build step, that's when things get difficult or tricky because now it's like, oh, might as well use Babel stage six stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. where you yeah. end up with decorators being rewritten three times. Right. I'm going to use my own <laughs> JavaScript, right? My own custom transform. Yeah. This is how I would have written the map API. Right. Anyway, so I, I love how Brian's, uh, we're going to put a pin in it, is like turns into like a master class. This is like, yeah, my favorite type of nerd. So thank you, Brian. We've been yapping so much. We haven't even had a chance to get into some of the fun acronyms that I'm excited to learn more about in today's show, like ISR and DSR and some of the other things that the cool kids are talking about. So folks in the cigar club or whatever we're calling it, the intellectual, uh, you know, philosophizing club, just going to hang tight for the next segment. This episode is brought to you by Linode. Gone are the days when Amazon Web Services was the only cloud provider in town. 
Linode stands tall to offer cloud computing developers trust, easily deploy cloud compute, storage, and networking in seconds with a full-featured API, CLI, and cloud manager with a user-friendly interface. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, scale, and support you need to launch and scale in the cloud. Get started with $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. Again, linode.com slash changelog. Okay, folks, we're going to try to like contain our nerd for this last segment. So bear with us. We've talked about some of the evolutions on the web or in terms of rendering patterns and some of the not even evolutions, I would say revolutions, right? Sometimes because we've made this like 180 full circle. <laughs> Either way, we've we've kind of we've kind of we're we're coming to 360 three, now. Yeah, we're coming I think, to 360. I think there was the client render was definitely a 180 from the oh yeah, client render was 180. Render. Yeah, now we're we're coming back yeah. to th- yeah 360. And so, and we've talked about some of the kind of cool power like APIs that have powered these changes and enabled this stuff. And so now let's talk about some of the stuff that's really, really bleeding edge. So there's some patterns being pushed like ISR and DSR. What are these things, Brian? Well, I think they're primarily marketing. So we got to keep an eye on that, but I don't think that's necessarily bad. And sometimes marketing does turn into categories and thought processes, but the sort of crux of the problem with the client rendering everything, you got to wait for that JavaScript to get loaded. If you pre-render, you fix that, but now you got to wait for the the build. And so is there a happy medium? Can we do some build, but not all the build? And this is where incremental static render comes in. Uh, It's definitely kind of more marketing than a term I've heard, you know, organically grow out of community consensus. It's it's basically Vercel's idea. And Vercel's idea is your component model will be aware that it is going to come in as an initial state and then asynchronously it will statically render, and the next person will always get the static render, but then somebody's going to get spin around. I think sometimes people call it stale when revalidating or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, that sounds like the stale while revalidate pattern. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize it was kind of being rebranded in this ISR. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know. So I, I'm going to try really hard not to be cynical, but I do want to just point out, like, you know, when these things are yeah. more organic community terms that have kind of come up from a consensus of, you know, fellow collegiate technologists or something that came out of a marketing blog post. So ISR is kind of more the marketing blog post and sort of pushes things towards uh, Next.js and Vercel's idea of still when we validate, which is fine. It is a very valid technique. You do end up with spin around as your your goal, but maybe your goal is okay for that. Like maybe your app is, I don't know, like back office widget ordering form for your your supply chain manager doesn't care if there's like a, a spinner, but if it's like, you know, the place where I'm going to get my vaccine appointment booked, maybe not a spinner, right? <laughs> maybe that should be a form that loads for sure. And this is where things get sort of tricky. DSR is uh, Netlify's sort of response to ISR. So Netlify saw ISR and was like, oh, that's cool, except now you don't have indemnity. You don't have a, a mutable deterministic build. You've got a placeholder that's spinning before you get the thing that you thought you would get. And so their model's always been about these immutable deploys and you always get the same thing. So DSR is the same thing as ISR, 
So first distributed static render. And the idea is somebody on the network pays for that first load. And so it won't render it, it renders it on demand or progressively. When it's been requested, that's it. So it's like DSR or DSR is like ISR except for there's no spinner, but otherwise roughly the same idea. And I guess these are just trade-offs. Like if you've got a gigantic content site and it's got you know hundreds and hundreds of pages and you just change the copyright, you know, that's a pain in the ass. You don't want to wait for the whole thing to load. So sure, you know, like push that up and let someone else pay for that that render uh, when, it, when it needs to be requested and happen. And I think that's that's totally cool. I don't know how you model this yourself. So these are kind of proprietary to the Vercel framework and the Netlify platform. So if you wanted to like port these concepts over to Azure or AWS or someone else like that, you probably have to do some of your own magic to make that happen. But ultimately these are just tricks for pushing that cache and validation problem around who gets the stale and who gets to deal with the build step. And increasingly the programmers are like, I don't want to deal with this build step. <laughs> you know, like I want to get back to work. I got to close these tickets. I got stuff to do. And waiting on this build is not part of that. And so this is where for me, things kind of start heading back in the full circle direction, especially as technology improves. You know, Lambda cold start used to be a few seconds. Uh, now it's hundred milliseconds. So, you know, dynamic render with a Lambda function is actually not all that you know, unreasonable and lots and lots of people out there are doing it now. BBC is probably the most famous one where they, the whole website is coming through a Lambda function on the way out. And, you know, people will say, well, that's more slow or inefficient. I've also heard, well, it doesn't have to re-render it every time in cache. We still have headers, the web still works. Is it inefficient? I don't know, it's 10 cents for a million or 2 million requests of Lambda. Seem pretty efficient to me. Might not be efficient to AWS, but you know, from my perspective as a customer, it's plenty fine for most cases. I should ask, like, do we have anything else to add on the ISR, DSR? Uh, I have some thoughts. What about you, Nick? Do you want to chime in there? I don't know. I was trying to think because I hadn't heard of these terms before, and that's because I really haven't done a ton with Netlify or Vercel. And so from that standpoint, it does seem more like marketing just because it's, it, like you said, it is locked into their respective stacks. And then I started thinking about how I would like, as a developer, work with this and work with it locally. And I guess w with both of these, because you kind of have almost two different renders or two different ways to get into that, could you have bugs that get introduced at that point, potentially? Yeah, ideally there is this immutability and everything's gonna be the same every time. And I think in the case of your website is inert or static and not really based on dynamic changing data, then probably is mm -hmm. pretty like pretty you know deterministic. Inputs the same, the outputs always gonna be the same. These things will introduce a dynamic process at runtime, which is definitely walking in the non-determinism path. <laughs> Could it introduce bugs? Yeah. Will it? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. How often and, and what kind of bugs? Like, you know, Lambda's down and you're depending on that to render your thing. That's a bad day. But if Lambda's down, lots of people are having a bad day. So, yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah, I mean, seriously, that was kind of the thought for me is like, it totally seems like a very undeterministic way of like, uh, having users, you know, like experience your website and there's so many paths, you know, there's like, there's just 
users kind of creating their own journey and like you don't know what combination or permutation of stuff is gonna like cause something weird and for me it just feels like you know there's the whole uh, how do i lose weight question right like just exercise and eat generally okay and i feel like just ship less javascript and you know keep it lean and use tools like web workers that have been around in the browser for a very very long time all the major browsers have had them for a while you know to kind of do some prefetching or whatever like there's just i feel like there's existing patterns that like use open web technologies where you can achieve like the same or better results even without being locked into like a stack per se or a service provider contract or you, you know what i mean so in that sense like i don't know you know yeah it's not an easy one because i mean if you've committed to this architecture and you're stoked on it and your builds are blowing up it you know, two hours. Yeah, uh, that's a problem. You you need better iterations, right? And so any solution, any band aid along the way, I think is is probably acceptable. If your builds are two hours though, and now you're adding band aids, it might be time to evaluate. Hey, this data is kind of dynamic. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe it's time for us to consider not pre-baking. Not trying stuff. to pre-baking everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that just that gets into something else that we'll cover in just a bit, which is really some of the decision, like how do you kind of develop a rubric for yourself and your team and your product, you know, around like, you know, what solutions do you really need? And, you know, with trying to kind of be as objective as possible, because, you know, it's really tempting to do the hot new thing, but really like, what do you need is, you know, often different than like, what do you want to do? So there's so many weird stakeholders in this problem too. So um, I mentioned this at the beginning, but it's World Accessibility Day, and that's an important topic for this whole thing, that the end consumer, the web consumers out there are our responsibility as web authors. And whoever they are, your customer is who you might be working backwards from. And if you really do care about this thing and your craft, then you're going to work backwards from a, a place of the most inclusive, most accessible Place and accessibility isn't just about people with disabilities. It's also about people on low bandwidth devices. It's about people in networks that might be hostile, countries that might be hostile. And so this is a huge amount of power we have. There's not a lot of web developers compared to how many humans there are on the planet. And how important the web is, you know? Yeah. And it's our privilege uh, to be able to offer for this platform. And it's part of that it's our responsibility to live up to this, this lens. And so that's where I'd like to start the rubric of thinking, like how do we do the most inclusive thing possible for the most people possible? And that, that will start with rendering HTML. Mm-hmm. There's some version of this story that doesn't involve uh, rendering HTML. You need it to render that script tag. And this isn't to say that you have to work with JavaScript disabled, but I think you should try. And I think, you know, this is going to get a little challenging for some folks because they're going to want to say, everyone's got JavaScript enabled. And you're right, most people do, but 1% of people don't. And that's actually millions of people. And uh, those people matter too. Yeah, they do. I mean, I feel like the web is, it's a protocol and there's lots of different clients and browsers are certainly the most popular client, but, you know, terminals are clients, Emacs browsers are clients, like, you know, and we don't need to optimize for the, I would say, minority use case, but it's important for us to include it in the, like, you know what I mean? Give those folks something. Now, 1% of the web is like millions of people and, you know, 
it's just really important to build a web that's open to everybody and not just, you know, the select few. So, but that being said, there's some interesting kind of other movements around like islands, partial hydration. And one for me, I don't know if we'll have time to get into too much of those, but one for me that's very exciting and radical is Astro from Fred Schott. He's kind of creator of Snowpack and Skypack and, um, you know, been kind of a huge advocate of ESM on the web for a long time, worked on something called Pika Package a while ago that, you know, morphed a bit, but it was basically like, hey, how do we identify ESM compat dependencies in NPM? But anyway, so Fred Schott's collaborating with some folks on this project called Astro, it's still very much in development, but we'll link to a demo and a talk that he did at SpeakeasyJS. You know, he showed this framework, this JavaScript framework that only renders HTML by default. And if you want to render JavaScript and you want to have that like level of interactivity, it's something that you have to be intentional about. So it's kind of flips the script. So instead of by default rendering, you know, lots of JavaScript and yada, da, da, da. Like if you want the JavaScript that you need, you have to be intentional about like when it's loaded and when it's used. And, uh, you know, it's almost like JavaScript on a tap, you know, it's like where you get to turn it off and on. But yeah, I mean, any like kind of thoughts on like Astro and Islands and... Yeah, Astro I'm thrilled with. They're absolutely speaking my language, although they're using different words for the same things, but that's fine. Astro to me is really all about progressive enhancement. Progressive enhancement, though, does start from the world where uh, this will fall back to links and forms that work. Astro, that's still a bit of an opt-in, but it's pushing in the right direction where we're going to prioritize uh, an initial render that is content aware, not a bunch of spinners. And um, I think that they're not saying progressive enhancement because they want to specifically call out the islands architecture kind of angle of this. Islands architecture idea is you separate your app not only into components, but into independent apps, almost like little mini applications in the page, and they progressively enhance themselves uh, independent of each other. And this is interesting and nice because you could have different component systems evolving in the same document. So you could have your Vue.js component beside your React component beside your whatever other components there are out there. And that's kind of neat. This is common and this happens a lot. I was on a call this morning with some other CTOs who were at a bigger company than mine. They were in the midst of a migration uh, from Ember to React and predictably they had both. And they imagine they will have both for the next four or five years because they're not turning off their business. And so something like Astro is really interesting to me because this is going to give us an evolutionary path uh, out of these big rewrites where we might actually see systems being composed of the older systems that will play nice. That was always kind of the promise. Uh, you know, never been able to load a React component from a Svelte component, from a Vue component. And the idea that we could start combining these things into larger documents is... It's pretty cool. Yeah, um, curious. Like, can you elaborate for folks how this is different than micro front ends? Oh God, I don't know. Which is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For me, like that trend, like came and went, right? Like, I, it's, I mean, it end, like, thank God, R.I.P. But it's, you know, it's interesting. It's like a bunch of frameworks were like, you know, we're going to be the rails, except for a client side. Like Ember was saying this, and others have said this over the years, and like I, I think it's a neat idea. The concerns are different, and the reason that we were doing things in one place maybe doesn't apply client-side to one user at a time. 
I think micro front ends was one of those things where it's like, as soon as you saw it, you're like, this doesn't actually make sense. But Islands Architecture does, and I think they like you to say the thing. So it's really a message. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like, <laughs> like, what's the distinction? Yeah. One feels icky and one feels like a place where I'd get a pina colada. <laughs> Sounds nice, you know? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, it's just reminding me of like when I first got into, like at my first job, I can't remember what they were called, but we basically had the same thing. And I don't know if we called them like applets. It wasn't like Java mm. applets, but it was... Portlets, portlets. Portlets, thank you. Yeah, That's JSF. Yeah, 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 I remember that. Oh yeah, that was fun. No, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, right. Well, I mean, so we, we could do a whole show on decision making, but if we could kind of summarize for folks the like, when you need what, if you had to kind of summarize it for, for people. Use accessibility as your rubric. For oh, yes. Uh, Duh, that's For your web consumers. Okay. As, as web authors, that's our, that's probably one of our biggest responsibilities. And there is no easy answers there. You know, different audiences are going to have different needs and being inclusive is going to is going to look different ways over the years. And so I think yeah. that's just, um, it's kind of like security and performance. There's no moment where you're like, ah, we did it. We're secure, we're performant and we're accessible. Um, yeah. It's not like that. It's an ongoing, uh, continuous improvement situation. We'll never be perfect, but we're going to try to be perfect anyways. Yeah, no, totally. I, that was the perfect answer. I, I couldn't, you know, I really think we should just like blog about that and that should be like something that we coin or, you know, cause really like you using accessibility as your guide is the best way to create not just performant user experiences, but like delightful ones too for everybody, mm -hmm. you know, it's a healthy North star. So thank you so much for sharing that. Again, this was such a, a lot to fit into an hour, maybe even a little bit more than that, but we're excited to, to have had a chance to dive into this with you. Thank you so much, Brian. There'll be lots of links in the show notes. And uh, yeah, we're excited that the web is continuing to evolve and push and question and, you know, iterate. So very privileged to be uh, contributors to this wonderful platform. So thank you everyone. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Brian. If you aren't subscribed to Changelog Weekly, you're missing out on what's moving and shaking in the world of software. We cover what's new, what's interesting, and why, and it's totally free. Check it out at changelog.com weekly and subscribe today. JS Party is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by awesome sponsors. Thanks again to Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod, Eric Simons from StackBlitz joins us to tell the tale of how they're putting Node.js natively into the browser. That's a good one, so stay tuned. It'll hit your podcast app next week. The JS Drama. It's rare.